Hello, I'm Elizabeth Barker, and in this episode, I have standards to talk about. It's a brand new year, and you know what that means. Yep. We get new and slight variants of existing BISAC codes. Yes, today's episode centers around some of the changes and additions to the 2019 Book Industry Standards and Communication Codes. Released in late December, the 2019 edition focused primarily on updates to computers and religion. We've added a link to the BISG press release in the further reading section, as well as a link to the archived codes that are no longer in use. And don't worry, they do come with recommendations on what to use in their stead. It's an interesting read for its own sake. But if you're like me and you like to put everything into historical context, it's a bit of a treat, really. Certain codes are no longer with us, such as data transmission, systems, image transmission. And I can completely see in the 90s that there might have been an entire shelf dedicated to these books. But by today's standards, I can barely conceive of a book dedicated to it. By the way, the replacement code recommended is Tech 071000, Technology and Engineering, Data Transmission Systems, General. And I would be remiss if I did not mention my personal favorites that were removed from the list, Computers, CD-ROM Technology, IBM Compatible, and COM 046060, Computers, Operating Systems, DOS. May they rest in peace. Seeing how the industry predicted where technology was heading and how they incorporated new concepts when it took a bit of a turn makes me re-examine the BISAC classification system in itself, where its strength and weaknesses lie, especially in relation to the global up-and-comer, Thema. Where BISAC serves, and it should, as it was created to, uh, physical bookstores well, there's only so much space in an individual bookstore, and online shopping may be transforming what was a space-saving organization tool into something else entirely. And that system may already be in existence. So the question is, does BISAC need to change, step aside, or stay the course and coexist with Thema? Our standards bearer, Tom Richardson, weighs in. Hi, I'm Tom Richardson, BookNet Canada's Bibliographic Manager. We're here today to announce and celebrate changes to the BISAC subjects. I want to put the relationship of BISAC and Thema into some perspective. The larger Canadian publishers have added Thema, but overall adoption in North America is weak. This is a serious mistake. We are not advocating that anyone stop using BISAC. The industry will be stronger if we were using both. It's worth the effort to add Thema. BISAC is a superb system. It is well organized and a great deal of care and an intent to group books selling in reasonable quantities into actionable units for retailers. If you want a system that can describe a book's place in the North American market in three codes or less, BISAC is your system. Thema is different. For a start, Thema codes are translated into multiple languages, and several new translations appear each year. These translations are made based on meaning, the translation of subjects, not words, and the act of translation has improved Thema's clarity in English. So it's providing better terms and extending the market reach of books that have it. Now, we know that's useful because BookNet has been approached by at least two companies wanting to codify Thema terms for use in keyword lists. They recognize that you are not using Thema, 
but they also need those standardized terms so they can have systematic access to terms in education and other specialty needs. Standardized terms are useful. We'd be better off with BISAC and Thema and keywords all being different and all being indexed by retailers. Thema provides a picture of what the book is about, where it's set, when it's set, who it relates to. Ten codes, subject and qualifiers, are common in a Thema subject. And that should free space in limited keyword entries. That underpins the BISAC market placement. Finally, and direct to topic, if you care about diversity, Thema is by far the best subject system you have available. The BISAC codes we're talking about today are currently available in Thema. Thank you. BookNet staff sit on the BISG Subject Codes Committee, as well as the Bibliographic Committee, which covers Thema, and a few others. We were able to add and alter a few codes to better serve the Canadian market. If you're looking for a more thorough examination of the changes, though, to the 2019 codes, Tom Richardson has also drafted this handy read, What's New in Bibliographic Standards, which we've linked to in the show notes. Okay, so first, the new. Canadian poetry is now a tree! Woohoo! PO011010 is brand new code that stands for Poetry Canadian Indigenous. And if you were to look up the Canadian Poetry on Catalyst right now, just type in Canadian Poetry, uh, you'd see that this is a needed code to represent a rising trend. So code JUV030090, which I'm sure you have memorized, (laughs) Juvenile Fiction, People and Places, Native Canadian, has been altered and now reads People and Places, Canada, Indigenous. The same amendment has been made to JNF 038120, juvenile nonfiction. This is based on feedback we received through various industry professionals that Native Canadian was just not correct by any means. And we're extremely happy to see that these codes have changed. If you're a publisher who's been using either of these juvenile codes up until this point, you don't need to change anything in your metadata to reflect this new terminology. The codes themselves have stayed the same, as online retailers and physical bookstores update their subject heading list to the 2019 version, it is their system that will reflect the semantic changes. Though we are thrilled to have made the alterations and additions, we acknowledge that this is only a beginning. We know more is needed. It's a sentiment that's been buzzing around for years. It's now 2020. Canada is a guest of honor at the upcoming Frankfurt Book Fair. The industry events have aligned, as it were, and the time is finally right to state once and for all what is exactly needed. And this fits in perfectly with our forever hunger for feedback. So we sought out a few publishers who are actively promoting and publishing Indigenous authors and works, and and we wanted to hear their thoughts and experiences of categorizing their content for various markets. For each of these publishers, we've included links to their websites in the show notes in case you'd like to conduct further research into their mandates or their backlists. And warning, most of the books mentioned sound really good. Our first publisher, Thetis Books, is the only Indigenous trade publisher in BC and the most established and long-standing Indigenous publisher in Canada. Thetis is regarded by Indigenous authors and the industry as an important Indigenous publisher and an example for others and upcoming Indigenous publishers. Anne Dolan, sales and marketing manager at Thetis, is an accomplished designer and multimedia artist whose career has spanned decades. She is known for her powerful wordplay and intense performing style, and she was nice enough to speak with us. Anne, thank you so much for being here with us today. No worries. Uh, Thank you for having me. 
Great. Okay, so I have the first question for you. So what are your main priorities as a publisher? Well, our main priority is pretty much our name. Um, Thetis mm-hmm. means handing down, um, sorry, preserving for the sake of handing down. Since our founding, because our experience and insight from within Indigenous communities, we've employed a unique decision-making process and editorial publishing procedure based on Indigenous practices. So we work to ensure that Indigenous material is expressed to the highest possible level of cultural authenticity and Mm -hmm. in a manner which maintains Indigenous cultural integrity. That's amazing. That sounds like a very big job. <laughs> it, it is, um, but it's it's really cool. I mean, like, it, as in all publishing, it's not um, it's not like you're going to make a huge amount of money doing this. But you have to have a passion for it. And at Thetis, uh, the passion is basically to preserve the stories um, in our language, history, our customs, and it just it's a great job. You know, you feel good at the end of the day because you've actually saved an elder story or you've saved something um, to pass down to future generations, and that's, like, the best. Yeah, it's that feeling of a higher calling in terms of cultural awareness. It's actually really personal to me because uh, mm-hmm. my mom went to residential school. Oh and I think I was, like, probably 12 by the time she actually told me about it, but um, I, I've always you know, wondered and asked her, well, why didn't you mm-hmm. teach Cree? And then she explained it to me that, you know, she was beat at school. When I get, got this job about 10 years ago, it kind of helped me, helped me uh, myself um, because you can learn the language, but it's the resources that are available. So that's kind of um, one of the best things about my job is I make resor- resources available for, like, uh, youth and adults to learn about their culture and their history and their traditions. I, I love it. Like, it's cool when we have different books. We had this one book uh, by an elder, and she passed away just before uh, the book. Well, we were able to give her the final copy of the book, and she was just so happy um, that mm-hmm. her knowledge would be shared and that these cultural stories would be preserved for like an, uh, future generations coming up. Uh, there's nothing better than, you know, knowing that your work is actually going to be understood and appreciated by people. That is very true. That's such a wonderful story. Well, I'm getting all... We came to talk about standards, and I'm having such an emotional reaction. It's okay. Yeah, but it's so so important, and it it is sort of reminds us of what we do, what we do, why we do what we do. Um, Because you're right, because in publishing, the money is not there. No. (laughs) There... There's not a lot of money going around, but, um, you know, occasionally you make these great, well, actually, they just makes really good books, and it's not really for the um, capitalization of the stories. It's more preserving them for future generations, and so that, yeah. you know, when our children want to learn about our cultures and our histories, we have some materials that are indigenous created an indigenous content, you know? Yes, the resources are there. Um, And actually going in this educational uh, stream, I have a question for you is how do you define Aboriginal and Indigenous? There's some sort of debate based on region and uh, some people seem to think they're uh, synonymous. And and so how would you define them? 
For me, um, working here at Thetis, mm-hmm. Aboriginal for me means the Aboriginals of Australia because that is their term that they've claimed for themselves. Um, indigenous here, I believe that is nation to nation across Canada, we're covered under the Indigenous flag. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are still um, kind of touchy about different um, names that, that they're classified under. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have a traditional name that's in their language, we'll, we will use that. Um, let's say instead of Mohawk, it would be Haudenosaunee or Ngwehue, right? It's different names, but um, typically we go with Indigenous um, out of respect for the people. So in terms of categorizing your book's content, uh, obviously there is a limitation in BISAC. Um, we've had up until this point Indigenous Aboriginal, but we've also had Native Canadian, which mm-hmm. isn't really a term that is used in Canada at all. Um, and we were able to recently actually change that to Indigenous in terms of juvenile and juvenile nonfiction. So how, how have you been dealing with this up to this point of actually using BISAC and categorizing your books uh, properly so that everyone feels represented? Well, uh, I'm really glad about the new BISAC codes, like juvenile fiction, people in places Canada Indigenous, mm-hmm. and juvenile nonfiction. Um, before, we had to just place some of our stories under Canada Historical and it didn't have that indigenous label on it, which kind of um, kept us off the shelf. So uh, we're really happy with the new, um, especially with poetry, P-O-E-0-1-1-0-1-0. <laughs> yes, we're happy with yeah. the Can- Canadian indigenous poetry um, because our poetry is unique, um, mm-hmm. not only in its context, but in its the way that it's written the way mm-hmm. that it's um, described and the way that it's actually created. Um, so we we don't really fit underneath Canadian poetry. So it, it's really great for us to actually have a BISAC code that complements our books. Yeah, and, and we were actually pleased we were able to get it, um, to present it to the BISAC committee because we're seeing such a rising trend in Canada of Indigenous authors or poets. Um, putting out a lot of material, especially in the past three years. Um, So it's always wonderful to see sort of a a rising trend that is homegrown, so to speak. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I I just love love the fact that, you know, we're having more Indigenous writers, Indigenous Mm -hmm. poets, Indigenous historians, you know, and it's um, a real nod um, from you guys that you actually did this you know, um, without having to bring up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, instead of, like, working off that, you guys were like, you know what, this needs to be done, let's do it, and it's awesome. One of the things that we'd like to use or actually have started is, um, sorry, it's hard to classify, just to have it classified as Indigenous books um, is great. We are Indigenous books, but um, Nation so if it was a Mohawk writer, a little more detail on nation to nation or by category, let's say a Cree writer, that's one of those things that we kind of hope for, you know, because we, we could put different writers in there under their nation. But other than that, just to 
what you guys have been doing is really great, like including the indigenous Canadian versions of the BISAC codes. So not only just um not only just the juvenile fiction, but like the adult fiction as well. That is a, yeah, that's what we're hoping to expand on. We're we're not done yet. <laughs> but we very much felt that it was time to go back to the publishers and those who are um you know, of course, using it and putting out the works and really trying to get a better uh, feel of what is needed and what the desires are so we can take that and be like, no, we have very good uh, authority on this. Oh, yeah. Like, it's questioning, you know, and it, it's it's really cool that you guys are including us in it because, you know, normally the Eurocentric European, well, sorry, normally the Eurocentric model is we're going to classify you as we see fit and Mm -hmm. you don't have any feedback. Whereas you guys are like, what do you need? What can we do for you? And it's really um, positive for us because we see that um, the change in our culture, our Canadian culture is actually coming through to people, you know, um, that Indigenous people are respected for their unique... um, vision, knowledge, and, you know, history. Um, And this is just one of these ways that, you know, DNC is actually really ahead of the game. Second Story Press is dedicated to publishing feminist-inspired books for adults and young readers. A small press with a big impact, they have been publishing award-winning books that entertain, educate, and empower for over 30 years. While they are not indigenously owned, in the past few years they have dedicated an increasing percentage of their front list to new and established indigenous authors, publishing indigenous works for all ages. We sat down with Emma Rogers, the marketing and promotions manager at Second Story Press. Emma has said that she is happy that her work has allowed her to collaborate with people who put a feminist social justice agenda first, and we wanted to hear more about that. Let's just talk a little bit about Second Story as it it is now. So what are your main priorities as a publisher? Well, for Second Story, it continues to be um, publishing feminist social justice-themed books for kids and all the way through adults, but the majority of our list is um, children YA, about about 70%. Um, and for, year, for since the beginning, that's been the mission, and I'd say in the last 10 years, we've... Um, try to sort of act more actively or in some different ways um, find and promote indigenous writers to work mm-hmm. with and we've held two indigenous writing contests to try and find new people to publish and do you have sort of what was the reasoning behind holding this contest specifically for indigenous writers well we rely a lot on people sending in manuscripts um, as a lot of publishers do, I think, and also, you know, the connections that you can make. And we wanted to make more connections to mm. Indigenous writers and and also to encourage people who are writing or maybe thought about writing but never had, to encourage them to think about being published by a, a, you know, a mainstream publisher yeah. <laughs> in Canada. And we thought there might be people out there who, if they saw the opportunity, they may not have sort of thought of doing that before, but if they thought there was a way to do it that was accessible, they mm. would try. And it turned out to be true, and we ha- we've had some amazing yes. successes. Yeah. There have been some wonderful stories that have come out recently for both children, YA, as you said, 
when you're categorizing sort of especially because you have first-time authors and they're kind of maybe not sp sticking to a specific genre because they don't know what they like writing yet so how have you been finding categorizing um indigenous authors versus the rest sort of of your list like categorizing them in terms of using like um bizac codes with bizac codes yeah. i mean by the time it gets to that point it's it's relatively clear you mm -hmm. know we've we've we try and make all those decisions beforehand. I think it is true sometimes it's a conversation, um, especially if someone, say an author or illustrator, mm -hmm. hasn't been published before, they just don't know sort of the categories that are used or the, the ways that, that books are um, sorted mm -hmm. and, um, and how booksellers and librarians interact with them. So sometimes that's a conversation so that we're all on the same page and, um, yeah, and that 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 it, and that also that everyone is in in agreement with with how we're going forward. Like, is this that this book is say a nonfiction book, mm -hmm. or that it is it is fiction, and that's clear. Yeah. Do you find that there's a request to make sure that it is categorized as indigenous as opposed to just keeping it at a genre level? So just saying science fiction and leaving it at that. I think with our authors and the and the nature of the of the books that we've published mm -hmm. by indigenous authors specifically, they've the majority of them have been for children. Mm -hmm. um, although we did publish last year Monique Grace Smith's uh, adult novel Tilly and the Crazy Eights, which was a Lone Star pick. It was a Lone is yeah. a Lone Star yeah. pick, which was wonderful. Um, but I think I can say pretty much across the board that uh, that everybody who who we've published who falls under that into the, the category if you want to call that of it, indigenous authors um and writing have been writing with a with with a, an indigenous indigenous audience and subject mm -hmm. matter and character um landscape at the at the fore of their work yes. so there was never any question that that was um part of the reason that they were writing these books to to and that they wanted them to be seen that way mm -hmm. um and I, I can totally understand an author who might have a sort of a different approach or, or want their book not to be seen first as an indigenous work or by an indigenous writer that they just want it to be seen as a as a science fiction mm -hmm. novel or something and that's that's how they want to be to be um, accessed but yeah for us it's 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 usually been pretty clear that the indigenous aspect has been has been very important and key to to conveying in every way we categorize it. And and I think that's very important to make a point of and that's why I bring it up in the fact that um, being an indig indigenous author does not necessarily mean that you are limited to writing for an indigenous audience I think but when, when the work itself calls for um, sort of a different structure editorially or thing because indigenous at the forefront it's for um, it's kind of following a different route that this is a category and it is important to see it rising. So I just, I want to make sure that people weren't confusing like indigenous author versus indigenous work, which is kind of, there is a very thin dividing line I find at times. Do you find that as well? Yeah, well I think um, for our authors, for, for the authors that I've been working with, a lot of it has been a really interesting and, 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 and wonderful to work with approach in that they they see it as a, I don't want to say the word mission, but as yeah. as, as, as a guiding yeah. part of their work is to, and, and, and often it's, it's in an educational way, mm -hmm. like they know that their books, if it's a children's author, um, they know their books will be read in schools and be, you know, going into that market. And it's a, a huge concern that for them, as it is 
you know, a growing issue that's being recognized by the industry at large, um, but anyone who's an author of color or an indigenous writer, you know, the, the idea that the indigenous kids out there are seeing themselves reflected in the work and, and reflected in books. Mm -hmm. And so that's like a huge priority um, that often comes up. Um, and then we have, you know, and, and then another author. So for one author, that might be almost like the primary primary um, concern when yeah. we're talking about how are we going to market this book, who do you see mm -hmm. as the audience, who would you love to be reading it. Um, and then other authors, you know, they're like, I want everybody to read my book. I'd mm -hmm. say probably that's it's, it's probably both for, yeah. for everybody, you know. They want, they w would love for their books to be read across the board and mm -hmm. by any kind of a kid, say, if it's a children's book. But they, in their heart of hearts, they know that, that the, the kid who might need that book the most is from, is from an Indigenous background. And yes, and of course, that is, this is a very delicate topic, obviously, and it's, it's hard to speak about sometimes because you, as well, at least I do feel like I don't have the authority to. But you're right, in terms of marketing, like this is a universal book, of course. Everyone should read it. Everyone should have access to it. But there is that sort of underlying mission, as you say, or, or passion for representation and making sure that it's acknowledged but not um, limited to um, or not ignored or just chosen. Because, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's such a fine line to walk. And I find that, as you say, the industry at large is, of course, becoming more concerned about this and that's why we're having these conversations and, and we're happy to have these conversations and very happy to have the conversation going but it, it really comes down to like this is another marketing strategy and we need to really make sure that everything is in place and and fair mm -hmm. i think it's a bit clearer and cleaner maybe for children's books and especially some of the books we've done that mm -hmm. deal with nonfiction, um you know resident the history oh, yeah. of residential schools it's it's not um you know, it's it's so clear that that it has to, that that book needs to that that book has a purpose in the market, yes. and that there are, you know, there's actual um, you know um, curriculum and teachers mm -hmm. who need to have that book, and that will be useful to them. And so it's such a, a clear line to market to. Yeah. Whereas if you're talking about fiction and how do you talk about an author's background or how do they want to be seen by the world, I could see that that yeah. is that can be a lot. Um, more nuanced, yeah. And it's interesting to see a continuing debate of do you separate a work from its author, can it stand on its own, or should they be part and parcel? And I like the fact that this has been going on, what, since T.S. Eliot, who really, like, <laughs> pushed this sort of thought, and we still haven't come to consensus. And I, I think that's interesting. I like that, though. Um, so in terms of categorizing, you mentioned Isaac. Have you been using Thema? Yes. And how do you find Thema in terms of um, expressing sort of your categorization needs? I think that the BISAC codes are more re representative of Canadian. Um, it's North American usage, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and more specific, offer more specifics to mm -hmm. a, a Canadian story, for example, mm -hmm. than the Thema ones. I think the Thema ha is maybe, in, by, by their very nature, more... Yeah, they might appeal to or, or reach someone who's searching for a book in a in a certain way, you mm -hmm. know, by by topic, um, by and not maybe not under such sort of specific black and white categories that the Bizacks mm -hmm. um, hit. We find that like we're a big 
like, woo, Dima. Yeah. Um, because by its nature, it's designed to be global, which, of course, as everyone, as like I think Frankfurt kind of proves to everybody, everybody's interested in everybody else's market. Um, and it's supposed to be able to be more flexible. So you're supposed to be able to sort of get more granular without having to introduce um, more codes. So it's kind of like a nice mix and match because the more codes, the more options, the harder it is for discoverability. But that being said, um, as you say, Bizac is North American based. It is heavily used between Canada and the States. I know that our, uh, our standards guru, Tom Richardson, is very much that uh, Bizac is for physical bookstores and by ISBN, and it's supposed to be shelf space, and Thema is meant more for the sort of changing digital landscape where it's not about the shelf anymore because we have unlimited, we've got the cloud, the cloud is everywhere. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of boosting discoverability by fitting everyone's needs without drowning us in codes. And it's an interesting time really to kind of be between the two. So how do you find that, like when you put out a book, are you putting out both codes or do you find like it's one then the other a few months later? Um, we definitely, it's our process to try and um, when we are sort of starting the record and filling in the record for mm -hmm. a book um, is to include both Bizac and Thema coding like subjects for, mm -hmm. for every new title at the outset. So it's, yeah, so both books are, that's, that's good. That's good practice. That's, like yeah, that. that's the practice. I, I, I mean, definitely the Thema is newer for us. Mm -hmm. um, can't remember exactly when we introduced that. I think it was with yeah, when one of our previous marketing yeah. people, Ali Chenoweth, yeah. was was with us, and I think it was with 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 her help that we started doing that. So I think it's sometime maybe in the last five five years. Mm -hmm. um, but now, yeah, it's sort of standard that we we do both. I'm not <laughs> I'm not like uh, an expert on who uses which, but mm -hmm. I, but I understand that they're both valuable, and and I yeah. feel like if they're both useful then we should definitely like that that should be our our goal is to get them both out there do you find that you're kind of going and setting the bizac codes and then sort of trying to find the thema equivalent or are you going through thema on its own and seeing just out of what's offered what would fit best like is there yeah i think we often will go and see what we did for a previous book that that mm -hmm. is on a similar topic similar subject and see if you know what we can pull from that sometimes it's, it's clear that yes that that we should use that code again um, but we we always try and and look around a bit and and, and think critically. Mm -hmm. And I think with the thema codes especially um, to to always do a bit more um, lateral thinking, I guess, and think about okay, what is this book really about? And it's always I think it's best to always have it be a, a thought exercise for each title. You know, not yeah. don't copy and paste by row yes. what you've done before because. Unless you know you're 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 doing a uh, you know a reissue of something, every book is has especially when you're getting to those sort of sub things that aren't the um, you know the primary codes when you're when you're yeah. putting in extra codes that you hope will be helpful. You want it to try and try and be as helpful as possible for that specific book. So okay, if we're going to go to like a big sky, like you can do anything you want to do, sort of idea. And you could sort of categorize um, your indigenous author works. How would you want to do? Like, what would you wish was available to you now that isn't that you're maybe struggling around or or just be like, oh, this would be so easy and nice to have. Oh, it's that's a bit of a. I mean, that's and it's, it's very big. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, on the one hand, I I understand the um, the need to keep 
you know, to, to, to not have a, an exponential proliferation yeah. of codes. <laughs> um, but then at this, and I'm not, again, I'm not an expert, so I'm, I don't know exactly what the, why there are the number there are and what, mm-hmm. and how, you know, I know there's a process for introducing new codes and I'm sure it's not an easy thing. But to me, in an ideal world, um, barring, you know, any kind of problems that I don't know about that are created by inc- by including by introducing mm-hmm. new codes, it would just be it would be more specificity, um, especially if we're talking about indigenous books. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I think we're only just differentiating Canadian from American, like in terms of of geography, mm-hmm. current geography, <laughs> um, the, that that um, Native American coding versus Canada. Um, and then have some, and I think I would like to see the more nuanced coding be across the the categories. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like it's not there yet. You know, there's yeah. there's indig- there's now indigenous and um, yeah. there's Canada indigenous replacing Aboriginal or indigenous and Aboriginal, uh, but not so across the board. No. So what we've done is uh, our new ones for juvenile fiction and nonfiction. We took away Native Canadian because that is not a real term here. Right. <laughs> um, so that has been replaced with indigenous, but it's the same sort of breakdown. Canada indigenous. So it's it's more specific to our market. Um, and then in poetry, we sort of started to flesh out the Canadian poetry tree, and we added the first sort of subheading of that, which is Canada Indigenous, or Canadian Indigenous, I think. Right. Um, so it's it's very slow, but part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is to kind of get feedback from people who are sort of purveying um, Indigenous works and seeing kind of what they need out in the other headings. So, I mean, there's no nonfiction specifically, but there are seven dozen, like, uh, there's cooking and there's education and there's... Um, I mean, even just fiction on its own for adult is is sort of an area that we're we're looking into making sure is available for use case in Canada, but doesn't I, you're right create like forty billion jillion new codes and also doesn't exclude books from being found outside of our market. So if Native American is the term used most by the the states, um, we want to make sure that our books are still found by people looking for similar, uh, like, fiction titles. Like, obviously, nonfiction is a little more specific, but mm-hmm. in terms of fiction titles, we want to make sure that we don't have too niche. Of, so we, we exclude discoverability when um, people are trying to sell in multi-markets. So it's a, it's a balancing act, but that's why mm-hmm. we like to hear what people wish they could have, you know, regardless of real-life consequences, like in a perfect world, there would be codes that would just hit everything and, and help boost discoverability. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's more just like, oh, I wish there was an X code. <laughs> Raises arms to sky. Yeah, I'm sure there have been times when, and I will try and write them down in the future, when I've been <laughs> looking, when I've been, we've been doing the, the codes and, and, and we've just thought, oh, if only this code existed and it doesn't. Oh yeah, for um, everything, get that back to us. <laughs> yeah, and I, I probably should have thought of that beforehand, that, or before now, that we should be, be sort of, sometimes you just, you, you just accept at face value yeah. what's presented to you and think, okay, to change this must be really difficult or to add to it. I guess one of the things I was thinking about today, and maybe I could be wrong, is that um, in juvenile fiction, the legends, myths, and fables, mm-hmm. there's a Native American category, yes. but there isn't one for like indigenous yeah. in general. So this hasn't come up for us because we don't have anything that we would categorize as a legend, myth, fable book. Mm-hmm. But I could imagine that if you were something like yeah. Inhabit Media, um, the sort of books 
that they are producing a lot, like a lot of, yeah. if they wanted to use that category. Like, do you, yeah, I think anytime you sort of have to say, okay, my only option is Native American, but it's questionable. This person, yeah, this author or is this not. this um, story is not Native American, by mm-hmm. as we understand anything today. Yeah, but that's yeah. an issue. And and usually it's to use Indigenous, it's it's accompanied with Aboriginal, which is problematic sometimes in itself. It does sort of group Australia and Canada together because in those two territories, those terms one each mm-hmm. are acceptable. But if you cross those, it's it's not such the case. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a large issue, but it's one that we definitely needs to be spoken about a bit more, and that's why we're kind of interviewing people from everywhere in Canada who are kind of just working towards a similar goal. Because mm-hmm. if we don't hear, we don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say it, it is great that Native Canadian has been removed because yeah. that was not Mm-mm. appropriate language <laughs> to be to use, and um, this is better. Yeah, this is better, and it's. I mean, just as the language changes, and, 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 you know, I'm sure these codes will keep evolving <laughs> to reflect that. Kegadon's Press is one of only three dedicated Indigenous publishers in Canada, and the only one in Ontario. They have been publishing books by Indigenous authors since 1993. Speaking with us today is Patricia Campbell, who has worked as the marketing assistant for Kegadon's Press since 2017. She is also a part-time university instructor and lives in Chadsworth, Ontario, just south of Owen Sound. Well, Kegelon's Press has been interested in publishing Indigenous voices. Uh, we've been publishing for a little over 25 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, they always say that their mandate is to publish beautiful books by Indigenous writers, illustrators, and designers. So we tend to involve Indigenous people at all levels of production wherever we can. So that's kind of our mandate. That's wonderful. So that sort of uh, relates back to the type of content that you're creating. So it's just, it's a little bit of everything, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, yeah, hopefully. Through our, history, <laughs> through our history, we've published more poetry than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are interested in, and we have published novels, short story collections. Um, our managing editor, Kateri Akwenzi Dam, has put together a couple of fantastic short fiction and poetry anthologies. Um, we've done children's books and uh, young adult books. We have a memoir upcoming and a graphic, uh, graphic novel. And wow. most recently, we printed a collection of sacred Ojibwe creation stories, which is fantastic. That's fascinating. The Trail of Nena Boju. So, yes, wonderful, wonderful book. So we we do a little bit of everything, really. Yes, very clearly. <laughs> so you must have issues when it comes to uh, prioritizing sort of categorization because you're all over the map. You're not really sticking to one type of, of heading. Um, yes, can you speak right. a little bit to what you've experienced when you're trying to categorize these books? It's important to us to make sure that they're categorized as Indigenous Mm-hmm. Um, so that's usually the first code that I use when I'm entering it on the Bibliodata forms. Um, up up until now, we've been pretty much stuck with the term Native American, which doesn't apply at all. <laughs> really, None of you know. Our authors aren't American, and uh, we don't tend to use the term Native. That tends to be more um, uh, accepted in the States. So I, I usually start with the closest I can get in terms of an Indigenous coding. And then after that, we usually enter three three codes of the BSAC codes. And um, then I'll go into something like territory, if that's relevant, 
or uh, just general adult fiction or whatever the age range is. Um, sometimes we'll, if, if it's worth putting in that it's a humor book, then, we, then we're, we're using separate codes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think it's of priority importance to us that we do make sure they're identified as Indigenous voices, because that, that's a very important part of what we're doing. A lot of Indigenous culture and language has been lost, of course, over, this, over the years. And uh, what Kegadon does is very important, is to help preserve a lot of that. So it's, a, it's the most important category that we have. It is. And I'm glad you brought up uh, the importance of terminology and how Native American does not um, mm-hmm. apply to our market at all. Um, mm-hmm. So how would you define terms Aboriginal and Indigenous? Because as you know, well, within the BISAC, Aboriginal, um, mostly pertaining to Australia, Australia, because that's their chosen terminology, but it's quite frequent in um, the BISG subject heading. So um, how would you, in terms of Canadian usage, define the two lang- the two terms? Um, I don't de- uh, de- define the term Aboriginal. I don't use it. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as I understand it, um, just about every Indigenous person I've met does not like the term and would probably like to see it fall out of use. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the government still uses it. Um, but as, as from my experience speaking and working with Indigenous people, Indigenous is the term that we prefer to use in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, it refers usually, uh, used with a capital letter, refers to First Nations, uh, Inuit and Métis. So people who have an ancestry in North America predating European mm-hmm. colonization. Um, uh, so that, that, those are the, the terms that we use. Um, there's another sort of distinction in that I see um, sometimes we have it uh, identified as Indigenous Canadian. Mm-hmm. A lot of Indigenous people would prefer to make the minor distinction that it's not necessarily Canadian, but in the territories of Canada or, or in Canada. Um, there are a number of First Nations that never ceded sovereignty to the Canadian government, and there are a mm-hmm. number of Indigenous people who therefore don't really consider themselves Canadian, even though mm-hmm. legally and territorially that's where they are. Uh, so Canada is, or in Canada, is probably more relevant, um, or at least more widely applicable, I, I guess you might say. So um, um, that that's sort of where we reach out. We, we, are, we are a Canadian-based publisher, so we reach mm-hmm. out to Indigenous authors in the territories of Canada. And that's a very important distinction to make, is that the desire to um, indicate regionality over sort of the, the colonizing aspect. And mm-hmm, have you right. been using, yes, and have you been using Thema at all, which is um, much more fluid when it comes to stating region? Yes, I do. Um, the way that I use the codes, I start with BISAC. Mm-hmm. I find the codes that I um, that I find most applicable in BISAC, and then I will go over to a, a, a converter online for um, BISAC to Thema. Often I find that there aren't corresponding terms in Thema, so sometimes I'll leave them blank. So I do mm-hmm. insert some Thema codes. I don't use it as much, and it's not... Um, I guess because I don't start there, I haven't found it as... Um, as detailed as the BISAC listing. Which so is interesting. In terms of how we've been working, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, perhaps I should look into this, but <laughs> we've, we've been working with um, 
primarily with the BIFAC and then using it to draw FEMA codes. Yes, and that's it's very interesting that you mentioned that because FEMA in the way it's designed is meant to be uh, much more flexible in terms of identifying region or nationality or um, even just works. It's, it's more of a tree thing than BIZAC. And it's, it's interesting that you find BIZAC is covering more. This is, this is a good conversation. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it comes to me from how I was trained by the previous marketing assistant. And mm-hmm. um, it was just sort of a habit that I'd gotten into. I suspect then that I should be uh, exploring more to do with FEMA and see if it if it might be the, uh, more useful for us. But in, well, in either in either way, the the mm-hmm. forms that we fill out for literary press group ask mm-hmm. us for the BISAC three categories in BISAC and three corresponding categories in FEMA. So that's how we're asked to fill out the forms. Oh, I see. But that's wonderful that both are included because, yes, both should be included. Uh, one does not cancel out the other, but in terms of where they're used and, and which markets to access, it's very important to have both. So if we're going to go to big sky ideas in terms of especially okay. the Canadian market, because, you know, it's it's our it's our market. We love it. Um, what mm-hmm. terminology... <laughs> what terminology would you love to use? So, in, and I mean this in terms of like within the different headings, so like cooking or education or things like that. Like, where would you love to see more codes that reflect the sort of content that you're putting out? What would make it e- your life significantly easier? Oh, it would be so much easier if we could just have indigenous as a main category and then all of the subheadings, like you mentioned. Oh, sort of like a reverse engineering, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, that's kind of high in the sky. I'm not really sure if uh, there are any other cultural groups where they go into that kind of detail. Um, Typically, like I say, what I do is usually start with the first code saying Indigenous literature of some kind. If I'm able to say Indigenous Fiction. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, the, the the codes you mentioned are poetry, juvenile fiction, and juvenile nonfiction. I didn't yes. see. Are there are there ones for Indigenous general fiction and nonfiction? Is that so? Not that, yet. This is something that is ongoing to... for us, and this is mm-hmm. why we're sure. um, accruing feedback because we want to take it to the BISG committee and say, you know, these are the rising trends in Canada. This is important to Canadian publishers. We need to look at the terminology again because Native Canadian, we just we knew we had to get rid of, and we got rid of it wherever we could find it. Um, mm-hmm. but in terms of adding in indigenous codes, uh, specifically because Native American is so accepted in the States and it serves their market so well to change it is a bit of a difficult sort of pickle because it, yes, of course. yeah. So it's, it's really sort of, um, trying to explain how it can serve both markets and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we have to make sure that, um, you know, the Native Americans down south feel the same as we do in terms, because I mean, uh, they, uh, the example that's brought up constantly is in, again, in Australia, Aboriginal is the preferred term and to leave it out is problematic. So you don't want to kind of have a universal term if it's not going to serve the populace. So it's, it's, it's sort of sticky, but this is why we want to get the conversation talking and we want to hear back from those using and, and finding and struggling trying to best you know, represent these authors and their works because it's very important to be discoverable and, yeah. It's good to be able to acknowledge that the the terms are different from nation to nation and and that, uh, you know, Canadians are able to use their their own terms within within Mm -hmm. Canada. 
um, as far as a lot of indigenous people are concerned, the, the distinction between the U.S. and Canada is a colonial thing. Yes, <laughs> and, very much uh, Their so, nations yeah. are very different, right? So, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, of course, that's the other thing. And I'm, again, I don't know how detailed, for example, other cultural groups go. But when we talk about First Nations, we're talking about dozens of different nations mm-hmm. and languages. So um, First Nations people people will identify as inda- indigenous because it's a useful overarching term, mm-hmm. but personally they'd rather identify as Haudenosaunee or Cree or uh, Tanaka or whatever it is, you know. So I, I don't know whether and and again there's so many of them, so it probably can't go into that kind of detail. Well, that's what we're exploring. And I mean, it's the same thing, too, is, is when the works come out in different languages, like in Cree, and then maybe a certain dialect of Cree, like you want to be able to to represent that. And yeah, it, 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 would, yeah. it would be nice because this is this is another thing is it's very, very important for Indigenous people to preserve language. Mm-hmm. So much of it has been lost. So if if there are books and, and some of our books do have partial translations into Indigenous languages, or at least they have the use of certain terms or words in indigenous languages. So it would be nice to be able to indicate what language is being used in there. So um, obviously there's there's probably about 70 different languages, so we probably couldn't do all of that. But <laughs> I understand it, there are 10 language groups that might be possible categories. Now I've, I've done a little bit of research on this, but mm-hmm. I don't know whether these categories, these 10 language groups are categories that come from indigenous people themselves or whether it's mm-hmm. just another colonial kind of research thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we'd have, we'd, we'd have to know. I mean, colonialism yeah. is so, it's so persistent. We don't, well, we very often don't think about it, but when, mm-hmm. when we talk about these sorts of things, this is why I like to make sure people understand that I'm, I'm not indigenous and I'm, I'm representing Kegadons because I'm just doing the code, because I'm familiar with the code. <laughs> it is important to listen to indigenous voices. And uh, so, you know, those, those 10 language categories, if they are appropriate to the people mm-hmm. that they represent, perhaps they might be potential categories to use within mm-hmm. these, these codes for coding literature, because it could be very important if we're, Addressing our books to readers of those languages, it would be a way for them to find these books. Mm-hmm. So, no, um, that's for very example, true. We, we, we published um, a poetry collection last year in 2018 uh, from a Cree artist, and she uses a lot of the Cree words. But there really wasn't a way to put into the coding that there was Cree culture and, and, and language in, in the book. You know, so mm-hmm. it would be nice if it were at all possible. So those are kind of, again, pie-in-the-sky kind of ideas. (laughs) But if we don't say it out loud, you don't ask, you you don't get an answer. Yeah, that's the nice thing. You can always ask. Yeah, you can always ask. Thank you to all who spoke with us. It's a busy time of year, and we really appreciate the time and consideration you put into answering our questions. If you're an industry professional who has made it through this episode and suddenly have thoughts, questions, or constructive feedback, about using Vizac or Thema to best represent Indigenous works, please leave us a comment or email us at biblio at booknetcanada.ca, which is in the show notes, or Tom Richardson at trichardson at booknetcanada.ca. He said it was okay. 
And that's all I have for you today. But before I sign off, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that BookNet Canada staff, board, partners, and our makeshift podcast studio operate upon the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabes, the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous peoples, the original nations of this land. We endorse the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and support an ongoing shift from gatekeeping to space making in the book industry. And we hope that our work, including this podcast, helps to create an environment that supports that shift. We'd also like to acknowledge the Government of Canada for their financial support to the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Barker, wishing you a good read.